God is concerned with who we really are. He's not concerned with all this external stuff that we can layer on the outside. Um, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was mainly concerned with all the external, all the ceremonies, all the ritualistic stuff, the, the legalism, and all that stuff. And there's people today in churches all over the world that that's all they're concerned with. But that's not God's concern. He's always been concerned with where your heart is. Um, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39, he says, Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. So you may be fooling your neighbor, you may be fooling your spouse, you may be fooling your co-worker, you may be even fooling people in the church, but you're not fooling God. Not for one second. Because God sees clearly what's in our hearts. In First Chronicles 28.9, says, Solomon, my son, thou know the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. See, God is more concerned with what's on the inside of us than He is than what's on the outside. And that standard that God sets to evaluate men and women is not a standard of what we look like or how we dress or you know how many tattoos we have or lack thereof or how much hair we have or lack thereof. That doesn't matter to God. He says, what's your heart look like? Now, does that mean to say that God is not concerned with external behavior? No, He is. And he lays down some principles in his word. But I think that he's only concerned with external behavior in as much as it's the outgrowth of an internal righteousness. For God evaluates the heart. And then this need for internal righteousness is this is kind of introductory, I know, to this segment of Matthew chapter 5 from verses 21 till the end of the chapter because we have to understand what Jesus is trying to get across here. We have to lay down a foundation so you understand kind of what what the Jews were thinking at the time. Well, this internal righteousness that's demanded by God, that was required by God, was really emphasized by Jesus over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, the part that we already looked at. He's been trying to say over and over to them, don't just have a purely outward religion, but an internal one, one that affects your heart. And the Jews of the day may be saying, well, this is all good and this is fine, but how does this relate to the Old Testament? How does this relate to what our traditions say? How does this relate? That's what they're thinking in their mind. And so he had to basically teach them, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, to kind of say, here's how it relates. This is how this teaching relates to your system of religion. And verse 20 really becomes key in this whole passage because basically what he says in verse 20 is God's standard is higher than yours. That's what he's telling them. What you now know as the righteous standard, he's telling the Jews of the day, it's unacceptable. God is not going to accept you based on your standard. He's going to accept you based on his standard. And they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, Jesus. Who do you think you are? We obey. We're scribes. We obey the law of God. That's what their answer to him would be. And what he has to say is, hey, wait a minute, not at all. What you guys have done is you have taken the law of God as he's given it to Moses and you realize that you could never keep that. 
So then you came up with all these oral traditional laws. You know, you kind of you can't carry a stick on a Sabbath. You can't do this. And then you think by fulfilling all these silly things that you came up with that aren't even part of God's law. They're just traditional. Traditions that are handed down. You think that somehow by fulfilling all these obligations that you're somehow keeping God's law. And what Jesus is saying is you, you wouldn't really know God's law if it hit you in the face. I have to tell you once again what it is because you've lost it. And that's why he says in verses 17 to 18 of our previous text in Matthew 5, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. And he goes on and he talks about how the law will remain till heaven and earth pass away. Not one jot, not one little stroke, not one little tittle shall in no way pass from the law. In other words, what Jesus is trying to explain to his Jewish friends here today, I'm not going to tolerate anybody who sets aside even one of God's commands. And what you have is not God's law. Therefore, I have to redefine it for you because you're a little mixed up in your thinking. And that's exactly what he begins to do in chapters 5 through 7. He begins to redefine God's law for them because it was lost in all their oral traditions and all the stuff that they came up with that they thought they were keeping God's law. They contain Jesus' explanation of what he said, basically, in verses 17 through 20. Now, you look at verse 21 in the very beginning here, and you go down through this whole section you're going to see one key phrase that stands out over and over and over again. And it's kind of a, a heads-up thing that says, okay, I'm giving you another illustration of how your law doesn't line up with God's law. And the phrase is this, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And you'll see it over and over again. You'll see it six times, basically, verses 21 to 22. It's right there. It's also down in verses 27 to 28. He starts a new section there. Verses 31, once again, furthermore, it has been said. Verse 33, again, you have heard it that it was said of those of old. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said. Jesus, bam, 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 goes through this thing like clockwork. And he says, look, here's what God's law says. Here's what you are saying. And he basically points out six illustrations of how he wants to relate their system to God's law. And Jesus is basically telling them, your religion teaches you that. (laughs) But you know what? You should be doing this. This is what God's word says. He's not comparing himself with the Old Testament. He's not raising the standard higher than the law of God. He's not taking what Moses had said. He's not talking about that. He's talking about something they came up with purely on their own. Jesus is talking about their religious system, what it taught. And what he's telling them is your standard is way too low. And what he means by that is you can go through each illustration. And you can see where he says, you know what? You only worry about murder. Physically taking another's life with malice. Well, God doesn't necessarily look at that. He looks at the heart. And he says, you know what? It's not only the physical act of murder, but if you have hate in your heart for your neighbor, it's the same thing. He says, you know what? You only worry about adultery or fornication. Well, God says that if there's lust in the heart, it's the exact same thing. 
See, God's standard deals with our attitude, not just with our actions. And he's pointing out to them, you just deal with the action end of things. The internal things are what God is really looking for. And it's interesting, when he picks out his illustration and he begins to share this with them, he kind of does it in sets of two. And the first two are obviously taken from the Ten Commandments. He says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, the first two things he talks about in verse 21, you have said of old, you shall not murder. And then the, the second thing, therefore, also, he said he talks about um, adultery down a little further. In verse 27, you have said that you should not commit adultery. You've heard this. So the first two are, are dealing specifically with the Ten Commandments. And then the second two illustrations, he kind of uses the more general law, the Mosaic writings, which are more general. They're not from the Ten, but they're more general. They deal with social relationships. They deal with divorce and oaths and different things like that. And then lastly, the last two deal with the whole subject of love. He, you can see him kind of broadening his horizon here as he speaks to them. And in effect, what he's saying is that God has standards such as those regarding murder, such as those regarding adultery. And that affects the very core of the foundation of every society. just had the opportunity to go to a, a pastor's kind of a overnight thing. It was kind of interesting. I got this email saying that it's this complimentary thing at the Fairmont Hotel. So I said, this can't be complimentary. It's, something's wrong here. So I registered for it, my wife and I, and it was Thursday night, and it was being hosted by Tim and Bev LaHaye, and I'd gone to their school, so that kind of caught my interest, and, and uh, it was done by the Renewal, uh, California Renewal Project. And uh, the whole idea of this thing was to, to call people back to the roots of this nation, this great nation in which we live, but also to um, the political end of the thing was to, to get the people in your pews registered and get them out to vote. It's an important thing, important election coming up. But the whole thing was paid for. Hotel, dinner, breakfast, lunch. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. And I said, okay, when are they taking the offering? I think I'll be taking an offering. They're going to ask for donations somewhere along this thing. You know, get the checkbook ready. You know, we'll put 20 bucks in there or something. It's not going to pay for the hotel, but we can't afford this anyway. And I'm thinking, you know, this is too good to be true. And, and sure enough, the next day, um, Friday, uh, after the... Uh, during the, I think it was during the luncheon or after the, the breakfast, uh, the one guy got up and he goes, now just let you know, this whole thing was complimentary. And it is complimentary. And actually the couple that paid for this whole thing is sitting right here. And not that they want to be recognized, but just to let you know, you could welcome. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, probably, I don't know, 500 some people. Uh, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000. And they've done this over and over, not just here, but in every state. And one of the guys that, that, that went to this, this, uh, this, this uh, event, you know, we, we were talking. And, it, and it's interesting that a lot of our culture, a lot of our things as we sat through these presentations, and it wasn't political. It was more what the founding fathers believed. And, and I mean, it was amazing, some of the things. I mean, I was dumbfounded when I walked out of there going, boy, I didn't even know that. And hopefully we're going to be getting some of these resources into your hands uh, pretty soon. But... The important thing that, that I walked away with was, you know what? What we believe, the standard that we have, even in our own personal lives, affects our society. So if we want to sit by as the church, as the California passes some homosexual agenda, and we just sit here within the four walls and go, oh, well, you know, it doesn't affect me. Oh, yes, it does affect you. 
in, in more way than one. And, and it's so important that we realize that there's a, a kind of a, a culture here that is eroding the foundation of America. And so you see here that he first deals with the first two the, the commandments from the Ten Commandments. Then he talks about the general law. Then he talks about basically the whole subject of love. And he starts off saying, if you don't have some kind of a foundation, a moral compass regarding murder and adultery, you're going to have problems. And beyond that, if you don't have some kind of moral compass in your social relationships, you're going to see you know, you know, different things in different societies, but for the most part, it's not going to be good. And then finally, if you can't extend that love into the personal area of our lives and personal relationships, then we're going to have more problems. And these are the, the six illustrations that Jesus uses as we walk through this text. And basically what he's saying in every aspect of life, whether it's the individual, whether it's the family, whether it's the social gatherings, we should characteristically have righteousness on the inside first, a righteousness that affects the behavioral standards of the way we act. See, we've got it all wrong today. We think that somehow if we act a certain way, it doesn't matter what's in our heart. Well, it does matter. Um, It matters very much. And the religious system of Jesus' day didn't have that definition. It said, no, no, it's just the external. (laughs) You know, we just wear these robes and we do all this stuff. And, you know, we follow all these rules and regulations and therefore God loves us more and and we look good and and all this. Jesus said one's righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees to be pleasing to God. And what he was saying was to them it was a shock. It blew them out of the water. They thought, who do you think you are? But he also wanted them to understand that he didn't come to lay aside the law of God. What he came to do, as one commentator said it so perfectly, he came to strip the rabbinical barnacles off the law of God to make it as pure as it was when God gave it by lifting it back to where it belonged. See, God had always been concerned with the attitudes of our heart. Always. That wasn't anything new. It was just that the people of Israel had lowered the standard so much with all their oral stuff, oral traditions, oral this, do this, do that. And consequently, they needed to be reminded that, you know what, what matters is what's on the inside. This group of people were justifying themselves by what they didn't do while their hearts were full of murder, lust, lies, hate, and anger. It's, it's so important to understand that. One, one speaker at this event, it was a uh, congressman, a former congressman, born-again Christian, he was sharing and he said, you know what, I'm going to sum up politics in two easy words. Politics basically equals, and he had this up and it said pi, because I remember it. Politics equals I for integrity plus E for economics. That's what politics is all about. And you stop and you think about it. That's true. You want to elect somebody who's going to be, what, frugal with our money. But we also want to elect someone who's going to be, have integrity. And he went on, and he, he went on to define the economic issue, and we're not going to get into that, but he also went on and he gave a good definition of integrity. He said, basically, integrity is two things. Integrity is morality. Okay? Morality is what? Not doing 
the wrong thing. That's what morality is. But he said it's also character. Integrity is morality, not doing the wrong thing, but it's also character. And he defined character this way. Character is a willingness to do the right thing. And he said your little child comes home from school and says, oh, they were all making you know, fun of, of, of Patty because she's overweight and they were calling her Fatty Patty and all sorts of things at school. But I didn't do it, Dad. I didn't do it. Well, you know, that's morality. But was the child willing to do the right thing and stand up for her friend that was being assaulted by the names? Well, usually not. See, and that's where we miss it a lot of times. See, God wants the whole thing. He doesn't only want us to be external. He wants us to be internal in our behavior before Him. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to kind of rattle their cage a little bit. And basically, to appear righteous, they were forced to lower God's standards to accommodate their sin. And you know what? We do that today. In our minds, we think, well, you know, I haven't robbed anybody today. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. And we go through this checklist. And yet our heart, in our heart, if we could put up on the screen what's in our heart, probably even now as you're sitting there, some of us would be majorly embarrassed and ashamed. Some are no doubt thinking, why doesn't this guy shut up? Because the playoffs and we got to get that. Who's winning the game? I was in a church one time and I saw a guy on his PDA checking the scores. Literally, just visiting the church. I thought, what's this guy doing? See, you don't know what's in the heart of the person next to you and they don't know what's in your heart, but God does. And that's the standard that counts. That's what Jesus wants us to be concerned about. I mean, you stop and think about it. It was so confrontational in Jesus' day that in Matthew 23, when we get there, verse 27, he turns to the Pharisees and he says, outside you're whitewashed. (laughs) Inside you're what? A tomb full of dead men's bones. I mean, that's like going up to a priest and just insulting them. It's just not the politically correct thing to do. But see, Jesus made it plain that men and women are not to be judged solely by their deeds or by their actions. That's how the world does it. But God doesn't do it that way. We're also to be judged by our desires and our attitudes as well. And that's totally different from what the world does. They didn't care about their thoughts. They didn't care about their attitudes. In contrast, Jesus said that a man is righteous if he never desires the forbidden things. God isn't saying that if you're a Christian, you're free to do whatever you want. That's obviously not what he's saying. He's saying that for a a child of the kingdom, the standard is raised rather than lowered. The standard's still there. And it's still high. Because the God who examines the heart hasn't changed at all. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or chapter 4, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because of this matter of the heart, well, who is qualified to judge this? Who is qualified to look at another individual and make a judgment call on this whole issue? Well, the Apostle Paul was being attacked in his ministry, um, and basically he stands up and he says, look, uh, here's who I'm concerned about, all right? Look at verse 3. Um, 
he says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, look, I won't allow myself to settle for human evaluation. I won't do it, not yours or mine. And you know what? That's kind of a a good practice to have. Are you going to refuse human evaluation? Now, does that mean that you just don't listen to anybody? No, that's not saying you don't take godly advice, those kind of things. But here he's dealing with critics. And you know what? Whether even sometimes, you know, you receive compliments from people. Sometimes you receive criticisms from people over a variety of subjects or whatever. It could be the way you talk or the tone of your voice or how fast you speak or, you know, you didn't agree with this theological point or that theological point or you didn't like how you reacted to this situation or that situation. Whatever it may be, we could all receive either pro or con criticism or compliment. And you know what? Don't put a lot of weight in those things. Not that you don't appreciate it when they're nice and you don't learn from it when maybe they're not so nice. But what Paul is saying is that, you know what, I don't really worry about that because I'm more concerned about what God thinks, what God is concerned with. In verse 4, he goes on, he says, For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he also, but he who judges me is the Lord. What Paul is saying is that, you know what, I'm evaluating my life and, you know, there's no, to me, no known sin going on right now, present time, present tense in my life. But you know what? Even that doesn't justify me. That doesn't make me right before God. Some of you may be able to sit here this morning and say, hey, there's nothing in my life that would dishonor God. Well, that's great. But don't think that that justifies you. Because it doesn't. Where does justification come from? And that's what he says there. That doesn't justify me. That's the Lord's job. It's God and God alone who can justify us. See, we may be able to see the externals in somebody's life, but they're not always good indicators of what's going on on the inside. You know, I could have a horrendous fight with my wife on the way to church and get up there and preach a wonderful sermon. You would never know that. Usually I'll kind of tell you that, which is probably not wise. But, but I, you know, that's just the way it is. See, where does our, rec- where does our justif- justification come from? It comes from God. That's God's job. The good action that we may do may be interpreted as being bad or being good. But what was the intent of our heart? I remember one time when I was in school, in El Cajon, which is called the Box. It's like this place far removed from the beach, 10 miles inland. When I applied to the school, I thought the school was right on the beach because they had a picture of the beach on the catalog. That's the only reason I applied to this school. But I got there, and they're 10 miles inland in this hot, arid area. And um, driving around one day in downtown El Cajon near the mall. And, you know, I mean, you may not believe it, but I, it's just kind of naive in a lot of ways. It's just kind of... Naive. I don't know what it was. And I was driving back to the school and down, I forget the street, the street name, Mission or whatever it was there in El Cajon. And uh, I remember seeing this lady, girl, alongside of the road. And she was hitchhiking. And I'm thinking, hmm, 
And it was later in the day. The sun was going down. I thought, boy, that's not too smart. This girl should not be hitchhiking. You know, a lot of weird people around, whatever. Started thinking about, hey, what a good way to reach out to somebody. So I pull around the block. Pull up next to her. She waves, and I wave, and, you know, she opens the door. I said, I'll, I'll give you a ride, you know, if you need a ride. Where are you going? And uh, she, by that time, she was kind of sitting in my car. And she goes, ah, wherever. <laughs> and I'm starting to pull away, and I'm going, she goes, where are you going? And I go, well, I go to school up here at the Christian College up in Greenfield Drive, so I'm going down to Greenfield taking a ride. And she kind of looked over at me with this, like, smirk on her face. And then she kind of goes, uh, you know, I, you, you can leave me off the next block. So is that where you go? Yeah, that's where you go. Oh, okay, thanks. Fine. I thought that was kind of weird. She's hitchhiking. She, I only took her like a block and a half, two blocks at the most. Kind of weird. That night, get back to the devotion thing and have our little devotion there in the dormitory. And, and uh, you know, has God used you anyway today? Said, yeah. I said, yeah, it was kind of neat. I was coming back from the mall and, and I... Uh, Stopped and picked up this girl, and she was hitchhiking. And, and you know, the, I'd see the RA's wife, our face just turning white, you know, as I told him this story. And they're going, what do you mean you picked this girl up? And I said, well, you know, she was hitchhiking. It was getting dark. I mean, what do you, I'm not going to leave her out there. Goes, do you know who that girl is? I said, what do you mean? She's one of the prostitutes in alcohol. No, 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 not, not this girl, no. You know, you, you got to be crazy. I've never picked up a And I started defending this thing and everything, and, and I wouldn't believe them. And they said, all right, we'll prove it to you next day. Same time, same station. They took me down there, and they bet me that she would be at the same location. And you know what? She was. Now, luckily, nothing happened there. I mean, I, didn't, I, I still had a hard time believing that. But obviously, this lady realized that this wasn't going to go anywhere. She just wanted out the next block. But here I was trying to do something that was right. It was helpful. Can you imagine if the dean of the college or if one of the other students saw me stop and pick this girl up and then just made a judgment call based on maybe they didn't follow me for the whole block and a half. They just followed me for the block. And they went back to the dean and said, Man, Converse, man, he's down there picking up prostitutes. Well... You know, when I did that, I, I wasn't concerned with what people thought because I didn't even realize the, the implications of what I was getting involved with. I just saw a woman in need, and I thought, hey, I'll reach out to her and whatever. Um, but, you know, sometimes a good action can be interpreted by other people, maybe even as being bad. Or it's just the opposite you intended it. And that's why it's important to understand that, you know what? We may not know nothing good about, or nothing against ourselves, and we're not justified there. And it's God that judges our hearts. It's God that weighs our intentions. I had no intention of picking up a prostitute. And God knew that. And luckily, He protected me through the whole thing. So He says, not only do you. Uh, refuse human evaluation, you recognize honest justification. The justification can come from God and God alone. And then in verse 5 there he says, Therefore judge nothing before it's time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels or motives of the heart. See, when God judges righteous judgment, he judges our motives. He judges why are you doing this thing or why did you do that thing? 
You may be one who goes through life and never hits anybody, never punches anybody. You may have never killed anybody or even fought with anybody. But you know what? There could be an anger that burns in your heart (laughs) that is much greater than that. You may be one who has never been unfaithful in your marriage in any way. But daily you may cultivate the thoughts of adultery repeatedly. You may be one who's never perjured yourself in a court of law or anything like that. And yet your word is not really your bond. You don't always follow through with the things that you promise. See, these are things that affect all of us. They they can't escape under the, the radar of God. I think sometimes we may want so badly to commit a sin... And though we actually never do it, I really believe God still holds us just as accountable as if we had. Because God judges the evil desire. He judges the heart. He looks at the heart. And Jesus was hitting these Pharisees right between the eyes with what He was saying to them. Because their hearts were filthy. While their deeds were all religious and and looked all nice. One writer put it this way, the scribes and the Pharisees of that age had completely inverted the order of things. Their carnality and self-righteousness had led them to exalt the precepts respecting ceremonial observances to the highest place and to throw the duties inculcated in the Ten Commandments comparatively into the background. They just dealt with the externals. But though the state of the heart was... Not their concern. It was Jesus' concern. That's what he was concerned about. And that's how we are in our society. We, we look at people and we say, oh, you know, so-and-so, they're so charitable. They're such a nice person. And yet God knows what's going on on the inside. He knows the motives behind what we do and why we do it. Now, it's interesting when you look at different translations of this text, You see it read in different ways. Some read this. You have heard that it was said to them of old. Those six things, it kind of goes through and you can see where it says, to them of old. Other translations read, by them of old. It's an important, and you say, well, boy, aren't you kind of dividing the hair here? It's very important that we understand this. Because in the Greek language, that word can go either. It could be to or it could be by. Either one. But what is the correct translation here? See, if the phrase used the word to, what would we be talking about? We'd be talking about probably the Old Testament. Right? You, you have heard it said that it was said to them of old. Well, who said it to them? The law of God. Moses. So it's talking about the Old Testament. If it's to. But if the word by is used, that would probably indicate that it isn't speaking... Uh, the Bible isn't, isn't speaking here of the Old Testament, but probably of some ancient people that were saying these things. A lot of commentators believe that the proper rendering of that verse and those verses where it says that is by them of old. You have heard that it was said by them of old. And there's several reasons why we believe that. Uh, if you believe that the law of Moses was in view here, we're kind of in trouble because, you know, Jesus isn't saying, you know, haven't you heard that it was said to them of old by Moses or by God? 
but I'm saying this. Can you imagine if he said that? Well, the Old Testament says this, but now I'm saying this. What would he do? He would just wipe out the whole argument that he just gave in verses 17 to 20 that he didn't come to what? Abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So that's the first reason. Second, if Jesus said to them of old, and he's referring to the Old Testament here, if that's the case, he would be setting aside the law and the prophets. Which is, once again, a contradiction of what he said. Um, and wherever you see Jesus referring to in the Gospels, to the Old Testament or to the prophets, he always says, you have heard that Moses commanded, or you have heard that it is written, or you have heard the prophets say. He says that over and over and over again. He doesn't say it here because he's not referring to that. Um, the last reason for not accepting two there as the best translation is the fact that the famous rabbis were called fathers of iniquity or men of long ago. That's what they were called. And so we really believe that what Jesus is referring to here is you have heard that it was said by these rabbis of old, by all your religious teachers. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the oral teachings that were handed down because they couldn't keep the law of God. So then they kind of basically filtered it down and said, well, this we can do. You know, we can fulfill not carrying a stick on the Sabbath, but, you know, these other things, that's impossible. Nobody can do that. And so they added their own thoughts and their revelation to that of the Old Testament, and that's what became the religion of the day. And so Jesus isn't contrasting here, as many believe, the Old Testament with the New Testament. He's not contrasting his word with God's word. I mean, that would be a contradiction. But he's contrasting the word of the rabbis in their, in tr- their, their traditional teachings with that which would be given to the people by God himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives two examples of this, one modern day, one back in, in Jesus' time. I was born and raised a, a Roman Catholic. I mean, that's the church in which I was raised. And uh, up until probably I was a teenager, I remember going to Mass and hearing... The priest go up there and say something, but I had the slightest idea what this guy was trying to get across because it was in what language? Latin, you ex-Catholics. Okay, it was in Latin. Not many of us spoke Latin. So you had a guy go up there in religious garb and, and say a bunch of stuff that you couldn't understand. That makes a lot of sense to me. Well, prior to the Reformation... You have to understand the scriptures were not even translated into the people's language. So prior to the Reformation, they had no choice but to trust whoever went up there and taught whatever they said God's word said. And so when you went to the Mass and it was in, in Latin or whatever, whatever language, there was no Bible that they could reach out on the pew in front of them or the chair in front of them and say, hey, this guy's saying that this verse says that. I've got to check this out for myself. They couldn't do that. There was no way to validate the teaching that was coming out of the churches. Consequently, nobody understood Latin. Nobody read Latin except for the priests. So they had the sole authority. And the people, just out of respect, would simply believe whatever they said. They had no basis whatsoever to evaluate what was being said. So they accepted it. In century after century after century, this this went on and on 
And so the Roman Catholic Church basically began to develop a system which was never, ever investigated by the people. There was no, there was no comparison of truth. Mainly because they didn't have the Bible in their own language. The people had unquestionably accepted the priestly interpretations and basically conformed to the system of Rome. What the Reformation did and why the Reformation is so important to us in church history is that it gave the Bible to the people. It put the Word of God in the people's hands. I mean, aren't you glad that happened? Can you imagine sitting out there Me up here speaking in a language that you don't understand. You have no text to compare what I'm saying with anything. I'm just up here kind of saying whatever I want. Well, when these people began to read the Scriptures, because it was translated in their language and it was put in their hand, many of them began to say, hey, wait a minute. This church is teaching this, but the Gospel says this. And all of a sudden, God began to turn lights on and hearts began to be changed through the Word of God. It was the truth of the gospel that helped to shatter these dark ages. And really, Protestant Christianity, as we know it today, was born out of that whole thing. And it was all because the Bible was put into the language of the people. And they were able to evaluate the validity of of the system of religion in which they were involved in. That's a modern-day example. Now, yeah, they've changed, and now Catholics have Bible, and I understand all that. But originally, that's how it was. And I remember myself going to a priest and asking him, why do we pray to Mary? Why do, we, why do I have to come to you for confession? Why, why do we have these other books in the Bible? Why, you know, why, 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 why? And the priest never really gave me an answer. He said, well, it's the traditions of the church. Well, in Jesus' day, the Jews, you have to realize that when Israel went into captivity for 70 years, historians basically tell us that they lost all of their Hebrew skills and they came back from that captivity speaking which language? Aramaic. Well, the original texts were not given in Aramaic. So you can see where this whole problem almost duplicated itself there. The Jewish people spoke Aramaic. They understood Aramaic. They were unfamiliar almost completely with Hebrew. And so you have the rabbis standing up there reading in Hebrew, doing the whole thing in Hebrew. Well, these people don't understand Hebrew. Well, that's okay. We'll interpret it for you. And basically what the rabbis did is they built a system based entirely on the ignorance of the people regarding the Hebrew text. And as a result of that situation... The Lord is best understand, understood here as having said, you have heard that it was said by them of old. Who's them of old? These rabbis that kind of came up with their own brand of Judaism. And he'd be describing the religion of the Jews at the time as a product of this oral tradition and what they passed down over the years rather than from the written word of God. Um, that's why it's so important that we have a foundation upon which to stand. I'm so thankful that I'm in a church that allows me to teach expositorily through God's Word. You know, some churches, you cannot do this. I mean, you may say, well, what what can... No, you don't. 
It's all up to the, you know, the touchy-feely whims of whoever's leading what. And, you know, hey, well, you know, we need to learn more about family. So let's, let's pick some verses to deal with family or marriage or finances or whatever. And week to week, you're given a smorgasbord of topics in the teaching and they're, they're pulling verses out of everywhere to make their point. You know, I thank God that God's Word speaks for itself. We just have to come and understand the text and, and understand the context of what we're understanding and then apply it to our lives. And it works. See, their religious system had re- kind of departed from all that. And they had all these traditions and embellishments and interpretations of all this oral law that they had. And just like the Catholic Church, basically they obliterated the truth by keeping the people ignorant of the Scriptures. And so when the Lord came along, he said, basically, I'm here to loose the law of God from the shackles of this rabbinical craziness that's going on. I'm here to tell you the truth. And so when he says, you have heard it said by them of old, but I say to you, he's not replacing the word of God. He's simply defining what the word of God is. And some of them had a hard time with that. I mean, when he said... I will tell you what God's law really is. Can you imagine the shockwave that that sent out? Here are these externally righteous people that think that they have the corner on the truth and Jesus comes along, pretty simple man. Yeah, he's done some miracles and stuff, but for the most part, when he spoke, it says that he taught them as one having authority. Why is that? Well, first of all, it was because he was God and secondly, because his teachings were based on the Word of God. What were their teachings based on? Whatever they believed. Even in Matthew 7, he said the people were astonished at his doctrine, it says there, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So there was this respect that Jesus demanded from the people. And he really desired them to have a reverence for the law. And he was really putting himself on an equal to the law of God. And that's what really blew them away. The rabbis had a a tremendous reverence for the law. They said, those who deny the law, deny that the law is from heaven, have no part in the world to come. That's what they believed about God's law. They believed that this was the only law and that the eternal destiny was dependent upon it. But what they did is they took God's law and they watered it down with all their own thinkings and sayings and everything else so that they could look on the outside righteous before people. The prophets always said, thus saith the Lord. And the rabbis would always say, there is a teaching that says, and then Jesus comes along and he says, you know what? I say to you. (laughs) That blew them away. William Barclay said this, clearly one of two things must have been true. Either Jesus was mad or he was unique. Either he was a a, a megalomaniac or or else he was the son of God. No ordinary person would dare claim what he claimed when he was teaching. He clearly claimed the authority of God. He stripped away all these traditional layers and he he basically uh, brought back to the rightful standard God's law where it needed to be. Well, Jesus kind of lays out some principles for us here regarding the law. First of all, it's priority. You know, the spirit of the law, it's the spirit of the law that is the priority, not the letter of the law. It's not, when you think of the law of God, don't think of it as some mechanical thing that you just have to kind of make yourself do. Or simply functional. 
2 Corinthians 3.6 says, knowing that it is the letter of the law which kills and the spirit which gives life. See, we must realize that God is not just looking for us to keep a set of rules, do's and don'ts as Christians. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for changed hearts. He's looking for hearts that have been molded and fashioned and, and reborn into God's image. So then for the first time, you can actually do the right thing. The religion was basically very hypocritical in that day. Even in Luke 16, 15, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are they who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, we have to realize, brothers and sisters, that men and God judge differently. You know, you can come to Grace Bible Church and you can sit here every week and you can play the game and talk the talk and do the works of the energy, you know, ministry in the flesh. And you can justify yourself in your own eyes and even in the eyes of others. And at the same time, you're doing all that stuff, you're abomination to God because your heart is full of corruption. That's what Jesus is saying, plain and simple. It's not just doing things. What's in the heart? It's also positive, the law. The law is not just negative, it's also positive. The Pharisees were, were concerned with what they didn't do. God is concerned with what they did do on the inside. And He's concerned with what we do on the inside. And that's why uh, previously when we started chapter 5, you know, you go back and you think on those things. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? That's something that comes from the inside. Do you seek to be merciful? Are you pure in heart? Do you mourn over your sin? Are you poor in spirit? Are you a peacemaker? Those are attitudes that God is concerned with. He doesn't list here, okay, you have to go to church once a week, twice if you're really spiritual. Secondly, you have to sing in the choir. Thirdly, you have to give 10%. He doesn't go that route. Why? Because that's not important to God. What's important is your heart. Thirdly, what's the purpose? The law is not just given to be the law. It has a purpose. What's the goal of the law? See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought the goal of the law is to glorify me. So God's law, He gives it to us, and then I take it and I make it into something that I can do, and then I go out into the highways and byways and I do God's law, and everybody looks at me in my religious garb and says, oh, what a righteous person that is. And it glorifies me. That's what they thought the purpose of God's law was. But the true end of the law of God is to what? Is to glorify who? To glorify God. It's not a question of asking yourself every morning have, or before you go to bed, have I kept all the laws today? <laughs> have, I, have I done the Ten Commandments today? I heard one, I don't know if it was a politician or whatever, said, well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments every day. <laughs> Good luck, pal. You know, I thought, man, who do you think you are? Shouldn't we better ask, have I glorified God in my spirit today? Have I been free from phoniness? Have I had a pure heart that had no thought of evil or anger or hatred or bitterness or lust or unrighteousness to the glory of God, not to my own glory, because only God can see my heart. 
In his Institutes, John Calvin wrote this, which I thought was pretty neat. He said, first, let us agree that through the law, man's life is molded not only to outward honesty, but to inward and spiritual righteousness. Although no one can deny this, very few duly note it, this happens because they do not look to the lawgiver by whose character the nature of the law is to be appraised. If some king by an edict forbids fornication, murder, or theft, I admit that a man who does not commit such acts will not be bound by the penalty. That is because the mortal lawgiver's jurisdiction extends only, and this is important, to the outward political order. But God, whose eye nothing escapes, and who is concerned not so much with outward appearance as with purity of heart, forbids not only fornication, murder, theft, but also lust, anger, hatred, coveting, deceit. For since he is a spiritual lawgiver, he speaks no less to the soul than to the body. See, what Calvin means is if you think God's law are only external, then you don't know the character of God. You don't know the character of God. Look at his discernment. God alone can judge men. He's the only one that knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows you. He knows me. He knows if you're a Christian. He knows if you're playing religious games. He knows all that. He knows if you're spiritual. He knows if you're carnal. He knows whether it's just a matter of acts or really deep down felt attitudes because your heart's been changed by Christ. He knows all that. Over in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, it says, For the word of God is living, powerful, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But though God knows everything, we can find comfort in the fact that we have a faithful sympathetic, Hebrews goes on, high priest. He says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of what? Grace, that we may obtain what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, isn't that great that God knows our hearts? He knows that we're rotten as sin can be rotten, but he stands there with his arms open wide, ready to give us grace and mercy. See, God alone can judge the heart. We may be able to stand before the judgment of men, but let me tell you, there's going to come a day when you will stand before the judgment of God and He will not be fooled. You better examine your heart this morning. Have you yielded it to Christ? You say, well, who has to make this kind of, you know, who does He demand this of? Every person is commanded to live up to His divine standard. It doesn't matter who you are. Every one of us. In Matthew 5, verses 20, and, and also in verse 48, he says, he tells us, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on, he says, be you therefore perfect, just in case you maybe misunderstood in verse 48, chapter 5, Matthew, he says, be you therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Every person in the world is required to live up to that standard. And you may sit there this morning and you say, what are you, nuts? Well, You've got to be kidding. I can't do it. There's no way. I can't be perfect. Well, you know what? God calls you. He obligates you to that standard. 
To have that purity on the inside and that righteousness on the outside as well. And you may sit sitting here this morning and you're saying, you know what, I can't. I can't do it. And I'm here to tell you, you're right. You can't do it. It's impossible for you to do it. See, and that's... So many of us have started off our lives in some religion or another, and finally God brought us to the point where we realized, you know what, pal? You can't do it. It's not up to you. It's up to me. And we yielded our heart at that point in time, and we asked God, God, save me a sinner. I need your grace. I can't do this on my own. I've tried tried and tried religions, tried to do all this stuff, being an altar boy, all this stuff. It doesn't take away my sin. My sin's still there. What do I do? Romans chapter 3 the words of Paul, it says, it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one. But then he says this, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. And here's how you get the righteousness of God, which God demands of every man, every child, every woman. It doesn't matter. You're not going to heaven without his righteousness. How do you get it? He says, the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. See, you can't obtain your own righteous standard before a holy God. You have to rely on the standard of Christ. You know, and you say, well, I, you know, you Christians, you know, you may need a crutch. Hey, you know what, folks? We all need a crutch because we're all in this boat together. We're all sinners that need the grace of God. It doesn't take a, a, a rocket scientist to figure out that we, we all fall short of God's glory, that we all sin in a myriad of ways, probably daily, if we're honest with ourselves and with others. God set that holy standard and he put it in place. See, and when you acknowledge that you can't live up to it, that's when he says, you know what? <laughs> I got some news for you. My son is not only the law giver, He's the one that gives the law. But he's also the redeemer. He's the one that makes it possible for you to live on that level of righteousness that I've scribed out for you to live. That by yourself, you'll never attain it. Ever. It's a fantastic thing. I'd like to... You know, compare it to if we went down to Pier 39 in San Francisco and we all lined up and worked out for months and we said, okay, who's, who's first, you know, get a running start and jump to Alcatraz? Some of you may be a little more athletic than others. Some of you may, you know, just make it an inch off and sink like a rock. I don't know, but sooner or later we're all going in the water. Nobody's going to jump to Alcatraz. Why? Because it's impossible. It's physically impossible for a human being to defy gravity that long on his own power. Impossible. Same way, when we look at our sin and we look at all the things we try to do to get rid of it, try to be a good person, try to be moral, try to help, try to do this, try, you know what? God is saying, you know what? It's impossible. You're never going to reach the level of righteousness that I have scribed out for you to live by. It's only through Christ. It's so high, none of us can obtain it. But Christ met that standard. And He takes His righteousness and He puts it on us. What an amazing thing. 
You may look at yourself this morning and say, hey, you know what? The outside isn't that bad. You know, lost a couple pounds after the first, working out and everything. But you know what? The inside's rotten. If you're honest with yourself, you know your heart. And if God did what was right this morning, he would consume all of us in a blast of his fiery fury. It's only because of his mercy and his grace. And he makes his lawgiver, not just a lawgiver, but a redeemer too, that we have the opportunity to come to Christ who perfectly kept the law of God, who imputes, he gives us his righteousness so that when God looks at those who are believers, those who put their faith in Christ Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Christ covering us. And you know what? I don't know about you, but that feels real good. In times when you fall short and you sin and you realize, hey, you know what? Thank God it's not up to me. Thank God it's not up to me to be saved. Thank God it's not up to me to stay saved. That it's a work of God in our heart. As long as you live your life justifying yourself based on your external behavior, you'll never, ever come to that desperation that God wants you to, that reaches out and accepts the gift of his righteousness because you know what? You think you got your righteousness covered and it's just plain wrong. There was a great preacher many years ago, Henry Ward Beecher, and he had a clock in his church on the back wall and it was always breaking. It never kept good time. And period of time, he tried to, you know, fiddle with it. And month after month, it just kept on losing time or it'd go too fast. And it was just always wrong. And sooner or later, you know, it just became a standard of topic of the conversation in the church. And finally, he put a sign over the clock. And he said, don't blame the hands. The trouble lies deeper. And you know what? That's how it is in life. We all sin. And it's because of our heart. Don't blame the hands. The trouble lies deeper. See, until we deal with our deeper trouble in the spiritual realm, our sin before a holy God, there'll be no way to set the hands right permanently before God. 